Hello, and welcome to Anthropod. My name is Beth Drudarian, here with my colleague Hilary Lethem to introduce today's episode, entitled Rap on Race. This episode is the first in a series conceived by Hilary and myself, inspired by the anthropologist Margaret Mead and writer James Baldwin's 1970 conversation by the same title. In the Rap On series, we pair anthropologists with public figures for an open conversation around a broad topic such as race, immigration, or sexuality. We thought both the concept and format of putting an anthropologist and a public figure into conversation over pressing social and political themes would be even more generative today when anthropology has experienced its critical moment of reflection. Even more so, by pairing off anthropologists and figures the public recognizes as authorities on the subject, the series further extends anthropology's reach beyond the discipline and, most importantly, beyond the academy. We hope this series will speak to the ways anthropology breaks down boundaries and contributes to social change. For today's episode, Wrap on Race, we invited Dr. Christian Tompkins to moderate the conversation. Christian, take it away. Welcome, everyone. I'm your moderator, Christian Phil Mark Tompkins a newly appointed assistant professor of critical race studies at the Rutgers University Department of Anthropology. The themes for this inaugural session are inspired by a set of conversations between the writer James Baldwin and anthropologist Margaret Mead, which were recorded over seven hours in late August of 1970 and later published as the book A Rap on Race. The two of them passionately debated the thorny dilemmas of race, politics, and society, while also interrogating notions of faith, responsibility and kinship. I think that one has to consider that white people, see Europeans, and this is all Europeans, I mean, just as, as you've recognized in your books, all Europeans have a deadly temptation to a sense of superiority. What this comes close to suggesting is that one of the reasons for the riddle of white supremacy is involved with some, really some universal impulse it is not merely an historical... A universal perception. Yeah, it is not, really, not merely an historical or theological uh, aberration, let's say, but comes out of something very profound in, in everybody's nature. In everybody's nature. That's a weird um, and frightening perspective, isn't it, in a way? Picking up on these enduring topics, as well as emerging issues, I'm joined today by Shalini Shankar, professor of anthropology at Northwestern University, and also activist and podcast host, DeRay McKesson. Before we dig into the discussions, I'd like to steal a page from DeRay's show and ask each of you to tell us briefly, uh, who are you and what do you do? Starting with Shalini. Hi, Christian. Thank you. And thank you, Hillary, as well, for inviting me to be on this podcast. Uh, I'm a linguistic and cultural anthropologist and an Asian American studies scholar. I've been teaching at the university level for 15 years the last 10 of which have been at Northwestern. My work focuses on youth, race, ethnicity, migration, media, and language. And I've published books and articles on South Asian American youth in Silicon Valley, about Asian American advertising, and I'm now writing about Generation Z through the lens of spelling bees and other competitions. I'm also a mom and a sports fan and kind of a media buff. What's your team? Oh, sadly, it's the Jets. Oh. I know. <laughs> and the Mets. I'll take the Mets. How about that? All right. So, Ray, why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm an activist. I was uh, one of the many activists in the street in Ferguson in the in the early days of the protests. I was in the street for a long time and uh, was have been in most of the cities in protests before protests was 
sort of a cool day like it is now. It's a good thing that it's a cool day. And I spent a lot of time trying to think about four big issues. One is mass incarceration. The second is police violence. The third is uh, I'm obsessed with adult literacy. And the fourth is the racial wealth gap. Great. Now, to get into the meat of the discussion, while many of our listeners may not be familiar with the book A Rap on Race, I think it is safe to say that many of us have been engaged and entangled in quote-unquote conversations on race. Uh, every time I say that, I hear Bill Clinton's voice in my head about having a national conversation on race. As we begin, I want us to reflect on and trouble this conversation on race framework. In your respective professional and political lives, how, when, and where do you find yourselves drawn into these conversations, and how do you approach and challenge them? And how might these conversations change when they're conducted between people of color, right? When the experts and the anthropologists are not necessarily white themselves. Why don't we start with Shalini? Sure. I think I got drawn into the conversation on race in high school as well as in college. I went to a liberal arts college in the early 90s, and that's really where I feel like through various kinds of political activism, especially around the Rodney King beating and the the trial outcome, um, as well as divestment in South Africa and other issues like that, I got very attuned to how I wanted to be part of a conversation on race. And that turned into multiple conversations as I went through graduate school and, and, and now spend a lot of time with students in the classroom talking about race. And I think that those spaces that we can create, especially between people of color to talk about race have been especially valuable for students because especially those that attend elite research universities tend to have very few spaces of that kind. And so I find that those are some of the most exciting places that I get to talk about race because these students are so hungry for an outlet and a space to think critically about the issues that affect them. You know, people people ask me all the time, uh, why am I making everything about race? And it's like race made everything about me. But I'm talking about it because this is what I'm experiencing and the people around me are experiencing these issues. So I talk about it with activists and organizers I just visited. I was just in a state and visited the youth prison and the women's prison. And like it's interesting in places of confinement and restraint, reminding people that this is a result of choices, right? That racism is not only an idea, but a set of practices. I'm, generally fascinated with the way that the choices that have been made have led to real outcomes. There are a lot of people, especially people who are sort of budding activists, who they think of the system, right? They're like, the system is sort of bearing down on people's lives, which makes sense to me, as opposed to thinking of this as a system of choices. And what we always try and push people to do is like, think about this as a system of choices and, and think about how race has influenced those choices. So both of you talked about engaging with students and you both worked as teachers you know in this conversational race situation right i imagine both of you are thought of or called upon to act as experts but i'm curious about what kind of expertise on race you find coming from the students you talk with or people in the communities you're organizing with what do you learn yourself from those conversations what i learned from a lot of my students is the real breadth and depth of their own experiences and how they have endured various kinds of prejudices and 
and often violences, but also how they feel in the kind of rarefied environment of the university. And one of the things they're most eager to do is find a way to take those experiences and use them as a way to really interrogate and understand knowledge production about race. Like how is it that these racial meanings that seem so fixed, that seem like what Duray just referred to as the system, how does that system come into place and what kinds of everyday discourses and everyday practices keep it in place in certain ways, even when they're in moments of change or flux, like how do certain power dynamics reestablish themselves to maintain a certain kind of racial order that is really hard to disrupt? So those are some of the things that I think students really bring to the classroom that um, they want to investigate critically. And I, I think building off that, this idea of like the way that power dynamics sort of influence the choices that people make or the choices, I think, more importantly, that they feel like they have the license to make, I'm always interested in. So I think about, you know, conversations I just had in the youth prison. And when you say to people, oh, no, this law is why you got 10 years. So we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined. And people start to see race in it. They're like, wow, it is really screwed up. And, and you're like, yes, right? You probably did make a poor choice at some point, but the consequence of that choice was totally like something people made up. And the idea that the poor choice you made deserved the consequence is totally a choice. I taught uh, middle school. And, you know, if I walked into my sixth grade classroom and said, like, talk to me about racism and race, they would have been like, oh, I don't really know what you're talking about. The language wasn't the language that they would use. But if I said, have you ever, has anybody ever judged you because of the way you look? They got it, right? They had experiences mm -hmm. and they understood it. What I found is sometimes we are not as skilled at changing the language we use, honoring the fact that people come with the experiences. Sometimes we have to figure out how to help them understand those experiences in like a larger, a larger context. And like, I think that's what I've gotten from all the conversations I've had. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, you know, looking at it at the scale you're looking at now with people who are incarcerated, it is really different than being back in the classroom where things are less stark for those individuals. But I do think the kind of everyday microaggressions and the everyday hostility that so many students of color experience in a university setting, as well as in a K through 12 setting, those are real too. And I think that that's something that students are really relieved to learn that those aren't just in their head, that they aren't just things that they should brush aside because there's so many people telling them that that's not a big deal. You shouldn't be so sensitive. Why are you getting bothered about things that really aren't that offensive. You know, so I think knowing that there's a lot to be learned from that as well is something that that I've observed. Yeah, and now that and I can imagine that in the classroom you there's probably more and push me if you disagree, that like there's language to talk about these things in a way that there wasn't public language for before. And I think that is what I've seen. Like, I even think about the conversation around identity. Is that, like, microaggressions is not some, like, crazy thing that you read in an article now. It's, like, right. <laughs> public language, right? And you're like, oh, yeah. even intersectionality. Like, all this stuff is, like, more public. And I think that that is so different than what it used to be. It's definitely different than when I was in college. But what I've also seen, especially in the last two years, is a real pushback. And, and I think this, the kind of white fragility that can surface in these conversations has always been a part of the dialogue at the university level. But now it's kind of reinstated itself with a real sense of privilege. So 
I think the conversation keeps shifting in these interesting ways that still make it hard to claim legitimacy for things like microaggressions. I want to ask both of you to think specifically about digital media as a space where these conversations about race are happening, right? You spoke about race and racism, right, as not just being these things that are out there, this big system that just descends upon racialized subjects, but something that is made and remade in the everyday. DeRay, you, you write, I don't know if it's everyday, but I see it quite frequently. I love my blackness and yours on Twitter. I'm curious about what kind of work you're doing to think about race publicly with that message. And more broadly, for both of you, I want you to think with us about digital media as this space for remaking and theorizing race in this democratic and mass fashion, not just among people of color, but as Shalini started to talk about, right, among white people too, whether it's uh, in more liberal fashion or among people who are thinking about and promoting ideas of white supremacy, white nationalism, or promoting race science. DeRay, could you start? You know, I don't have many regrets about the, about the movement in, in the beginning, I will say if there's anything I wish I had just like understood better, and this is why I'm obsessed with this idea of a system of choices, is that like, I think I definitely had a lens towards systemic oppression. I like had this sort of language. I learned it in college. And I grew up in Baltimore and, and it was a community organizer as a young person. So like I understood that. I, In hindsight, I, I definitely thought parts of it were just fixed. Though, right? Like this is sort of like, this is what the court looks like. And I think at the beginning of the protest, I started to understand more about police violence. But, you know, you think about how little data existed back then. Is that now we know a third of all the people killed by strangers killed by a police officer. But, like, I didn't know that then. Definitely didn't have a grasp of, like, what the range of solutions are. And I just think about how important that has been. Like, when I think about how my own growth around race is like I heard people say race is a social construct and theoretically I got that. I think that practically that was sort of like, I don't really know what to do with that. And I didn't know what the like language of social constructs was. So I think about how I've evolved in that way as like a starting point to sort of break into your question. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think too that the, the power of mobilizing that is offered by social media is really tremendous and being able to hear voices that I don't know what other platforms exist to hear those voices. And I know I wasn't hearing them before social media. So, you know, DeRay, I started following you once I joined Twitter, which was late. I joined only in 2014. But, you know, I love following you and I love following other people on Black Twitter. There's Desi Twitter. There's like all of these different differentiated Twitters that I think are really exciting because they kind of create these little worlds. But I also it also makes me think about how much of a feedback loop that creates just on the politics that you already agree with. And I think this is this kind of speaks to your point of how certain it's not just like social media for good. Right. I mean, it's used for white supremacy. It's used for white nationalism. It's used for all kinds of political agendas. And it seems like it's a really easy place for people to gather support quickly for ideas. So I think it's kind of remarkable how quickly it's mobilized groups of people. Do you think about how how just quickly messages can spread today in a way that just it was impossible before? 
Mm-hmm. And that there's like a, a beauty to that and a danger. I think it was, I think about how we use it in the street at the beginning. It's like really incredible. I think about now how fake news spreads. It's like the consequence of it. So I found myself being a little quieter. What I will always say about Twitter, where I never criticize people for sort of, quote, being activists online, is that if it were not for social media, Missouri would have tried to convince you that we didn't exist in those early days. Literally, there was a no-fly zone. The media was treated crazy. And like, if we hadn't been the only, if we hadn't been able to tell our own story and show pictures, and da-da-da, they literally would have been like, oh, nothing to see here. And, and I never forget that. Yeah, I think some of that ability, especially to broadcast video and circulate images, is something that we really, people don't have to be beholden to network media anymore. That's incredible. DeRay, you talked about, right, digital media and activism as these spaces in which you just learned an incredible amount about race and about the world, and and Shalini as well. How do you stay vigilant in making sure that you use these tools as learning spaces? You know, because they're also entertainment spaces, which is fine. We all need to be entertained. And they're also spaces that confirm our biases and our sense of self and, and what groups we belong to. But what are the ways you either see other people do or personally try to practice to make sure that you're using digital media to learn? I try not to fight online, which is sometimes harder than not. Last night, somebody said something. I tweeted, um, I don't know, I did a news hit and like the reporter asked some sort of crazy question. person just didn't like my response. So this professor at some university, it was like three o'clock in the morning I woke up. She wrote this whole thing about you really just Facebook live the protests. You weren't really, and it's like, okay, first of all, these are the protests you didn't even come to, right? So like, you don't know what I, whether I was the maestro of everything or sat on the corner for 400 days. Like you don't know because you weren't there. But also the license that people feel like they have to say things like as like she said it as a matter of fact, right? You weren't there when when I got dragged out of the police department by my ankle. Like you just weren't there but like the internet has made people feel like they can talk about legitimate things that happened or didn't happen as fact and they have no clue and that sort of drives me nuts so i try really hard not to engage in sort of battles especially because because i have a big platform what i what i found the hard way is that some people want to fight just so they can get the visibility of being in battle that's not very helpful so if i respond to people i try to do it with like a larger intent like i'll just respond to this one person and that'll sort of sum up everything the second is that I've been able to meet so many incredible experts and activists. So like I can tweet, you know, does anybody have a copy of this police union contract that they refuse to give to us? And like somebody will email it to me or today I'm, I'm hopefully going to talk to an expert on parole. And like I only found this person out because of the Internet. And those sort of things are really cool. I always worry. One of the reasons why I started the podcast though, is that I was worried that people weren't learning as much. And I wanted to create like a different space where people could learn from conversation. Dere, do you feel like in your time on Twitter, like as you've built your following, has your fundamental relationship with that medium changed at all? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a positive way to say this. I think that (laughs) you couldn't be famous. Like when we were in the street in St. Louis, I wasn't trying to build a platform, right? We were literally just trying to get to tomorrow. So it was like one day I looked up and had a lot of followers, but I wasn't like sitting sitting down being like, oh my God, I hope I get 500 more followers today, right? Like I was in a space where like I had a big platform and I and I thought about that as being in service or like whatever. 
Now it's interesting because people, they want to get a career or whatever off of Twitter or Facebook. So it's made the dynamic of being online just so different. So like today, it's interesting. What I say has a, a lot less power. It just doesn't travel as far. What I mm. amplify has, has a lot of power. If I find a story or a person or like a video that I think is really interesting, important, if I amplify that, it can like become news or the person will be on Ellen or whatever, which is very different than before. Before what I said like would always resonate and now it's just a little different. I've seen those things change. I don't spend as much time going back and forth or like engaging in long conversation because it's like a little more toxic and I don't want to leave the platform. And I worry that like the more time I spend on it, the more likely I'll be to leave it. Right. No, that makes sense. I think I try to not read the comments, just even in other people's threads, because they end up being kind of vicious a lot of the time in a way that the original message really didn't invite. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. Have you seen that to be cool for your research? You know, I, I don't use it very effectively and or often. I more just learn so much reading from other people's tweets. I ask my students when they're in my courses to follow me so I can tweet articles and things like that, and they do the same at me. So I like it in that sense, that it isn't just everything going through a syllabus sort of thing. But I also like hearing about things from media outlets that I wouldn't otherwise follow that other people tweet. So I think in that broader sense, it's been really helpful. And scary, though, you know, just seeing the way people feel entitled to speak to each other. I think, you know, you have that barrier of civility removed when you don't know who someone is. And if that's really heightened on Twitter, I think even more than 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 um, Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. This question about amplification and storytelling, you know, this is something that anthropologists are very familiar with, right? We'll go live somewhere for a year or more. And, you know, we have to select what kind of narratives we present to our readers and to the public. And I want to think about this question of amplification and storytelling with regards to police violence specifically. The anthropologist Lawrence Ralph, whose book came out a few years ago, his research is based in Chicago, and it focuses on injury and the experiences of people, of uh, gang members and people who are wounded but not killed in violent encounters within black communities and with police. So many of the right popular narratives around police violence are about those who are killed, like Mike Brown or Sandra Bland or more recently in Sacramento, Stephon Clark. I'd like to know what you think about how we can reckon with and bring to the forefront to use Ralph's lens, right, living through injury, right, and how we can amplify and tell stories and what is the importance of thinking about all the injuries, some visible but some also invisible, that result from police violence specifically. I'm all, again, I don't want to be a broken record around choices. I'm a broken record to myself about it right now. But there's a system and structure that, that almost guarantees that police officers won't be held accountable. And I think I, I think that I, and this is what we often do, and it makes sense because the issues are personal. I think that I have personalized it so much, the issue that it became an issue of like officers who were racist, right? And like, while I think that is true in these cases, me personalizing it to that level didn't help me see the institution that, that supports and encourages the behaviors and the language is there, right? People will be like, the police are corrupt. Like, 
once you pull back that language, it was like, I didn't have anything else. And then we did like the first public database of use of force policies, the first public database of police union contracts, and the first database of police officer bill of rights. And then you saw this layer of like, oh no, they somebody like built a system. So you think about Stefan Clark, the officer doesn't have to testify, doesn't have to, can't be interrogated immediately. The use of force policy doesn't actually require a verbal warning before using deadly force or any force. Doesn't require de-escalation. You're like, okay, so he's not going to get held accountable internally because the rules don't really hold him accountable. And then when you look at things like the interrogation process in Sacramento, officers can bring their own recording device. They can ask for breaks when they want a break. The rules are just so not the same. It's literally two different systems. And so I think about living through it. It's like people have figured out how to cope, right? Like you sort of get to tomorrow. There's like a ritual to the pain. Big news story. People stand in the street. People grieve. Sort of the world moves on and it happens again. There's like a whole ritual. But the other part of living through it is like seeing the what behind it. And that's what I'm obsessed with right now. What are the things? What are the ideas? What are the structures that actually allow this to not only happen once, but to persist? Also, just, you know, to go back to the question, the way you asked the question of like, what does it mean to be living with injury? I do feel like there's this media focus on this spectacular violence of murder and the Stefan Clark story and all of the other stories in the media that have really showcased police brutality in this fatalistic way. And it doesn't address the kind of the way people live in fear now, you know, the way people fear arrest for just going about their daily day, you know, to get into a car and drive. There is that fear. And and I don't fear it. You know, I'm not I'm not black, but I, I can see how palpable that is and how real it is for people who I know who don't want to go out in certain neighborhoods after a certain hour, and they're usually white neighborhoods. You know, it, it's like a whole different way of how do we tell the story that the media isn't telling and how to make that matter as well. Especially in the U.S., I think academia has a real tendency to think that it already understands everything that's happening in the United States because so many academics already live here. So it really downplays the ways that certain stories just don't get told. And I think that just living in that day-to-day fear and violence is a story that needs much more attention. When we talk about right police violence and the kinds of stories that get surfaced and the kinds of stories that get silenced, and DeRay really highlighted the way that there's all kinds of systems and choices that make it so that certain narratives uh, and outcomes get produced and other narratives get silenced. All of this, you know, thinking about Clark in the past week and the broader spectrum of violence that we just discussed, you know, it kind of gets me in, in my heart and can take, take you to a, a dark place. And so I wanted to ask my next question to you all about hope as a political practice. You know, one of the dynamics that you see in the 1970 conversation between Baldwin and Mead and has a again, been repeated with ta Coates on the Colbert show recently, is the demand for people of color to offer a certain kind of political hope, and then a kind of anger or confusion when this demand is refused. And rather than relitigating those specific conversations, I'd like to know what you both think these conflicts or demands around hope tell us about 
how hope and faith work in politics, not just in a kind of religious sense, but in a, as a general social and political practice. How do you see hope and faith uh, and optimism at play in your political and intellectual lives? And do you ever find yourself compelled to offer these sentiments? I'm always happy when people feel that they can refuse these kinds of requests for hope and to kind of make people feel like ultimately it's all going to work out. Because I think that really takes the responsibility and burden off of a much bigger institutional set of circumstances and puts it on individuals who are most affected by those dynamics. So I think that there are other scholars as well who have written about refusal and the politics of refusing to produce that kind of hope. And it creates, I think, a lot of discomfort among people who then realize that, well, maybe they have to take on some of that hard work of helping to change a system that disproportionately affects people of color. And so just leaving it to people of color to fix it isn't is maybe not going to happen as much anymore or to to help have people of color help them feel okay in their own complicity with that system is something else that refusing that is really powerful. So I'm not saying I don't have hope, but I think hope is a somewhat loaded term. And it's it's also supposed to produce this kind of affective state of feeling good. And that isn't always warranted. People shouldn't feel entitled to feel good about something in which good things aren't happening. Sorry, maybe that was really dark. (laughs) I've always thought about hope as the belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. I I don't think about it as a demand. I I, have heard this argument before, and it seems like very theoretical to me that like nobody was demanding us to be in the street. The act of protest is an act rooted in the belief that something can be different. It wasn't like simply this like weird catharsis, and I've heard people talk about it. It wasn't like we stayed in the street just as an expression of sort of rage for the sake of rage, it was righteous anger, all fueled towards like, this can be different, right? Like something can be different. And I think about hope is like that fundamental belief that tomorrow can be different than today and like hopefully better. I don't think about it as like the demand that, that we are the only people that can make it that way. And I do think there's like a, an important distinction between like hope is magic and hope is work. And there are a lot of people I've heard talk about hope is like magic, right? That like, if I just have hope that like the system will change, it's like, no, hope is work, right? Like the belief that tomorrow can be better than today is something that that requires action and not just our action, but there are like two types of people in the world. People who believe this is fixed and permanent and people who believe that this is malleable and the result of choice. And the people that I've seen double down on hope is a bad thing are people who sort of are like, the system is screwed. And like acknowledging that and not having people work into the abyss is actually a good thing, right? Because like the system, it, it white supremacy sort of is what it is. And then there are other people who are like, no, this was again like a system of choices and we can make different choices. It's not easy, not quick. That to me is a, such a different way to think about home. That's a really interesting distinction. What do you do when people want the magic and not don't want to do the work? I help them redefine what hope is. I think the magic comes from like a lack of understanding about the pieces and like the system was built as Legos, right? It wasn't built as like an already done puzzle. The hard part is that like we've never seen, we didn't see the Legos. You've never seen the Legos. You've only seen the end product. 
So helping people see that this is in different pieces and part of the way to like break the system is break the pieces. The system was built in pieces and that's not incrementalism and in, in the way people critique it because what we know to be true is that we take away some pieces that are foundational and the rest sort of fall too, that that's actually a part of the work. So when I've seen people make the transition from hope is magic to hope is work, it's been about helping them see, nope, these are the, this is like how it was done and this is the game that's being played. Mm. All right. Do you guys have any questions for each other? How would you describe the changes you've seen in the classroom, like sort of pre-protest, post-protest? There's a real thirst for wanting to know everything in a way that before people, uh, students were interested in their their own subjectivity and what they brought to a certain set of questions. But now they really see the value in understanding the bigger picture as big as they possibly can, all of those Lego pieces, to use your analogy, they want to know how they got assembled and how they continue to work together. And I think that's really changed what kind of understanding they can walk away with. So that's been really exciting. All right, great. In the last maybe minute, if you have quick thought about you know, especially having this conversation right between people of color, we've seen all this mobilization over the past a few years with Black Lives Matter, with immigration, with the Muslim ban. What do you think is the most important work to build solidarity between communities of color, whether in the United States or uh, internationally? Why don't we start with you, DeRay? Programs and services are really important, so we should have them. I, I believe in programs. I believe in services. I'm also mindful that programs and services sort of are rooted in three beliefs. One, not all of them. Some of them, most of them are rooted in the belief that like poor people in marginalized communities can't make a decision for themselves. Uh, people also forget the only reason we need a gazillion programs and services is because the structure screwed up, right? So the, the reason why we need a million after school programs teaching people how to read is not because they're just dumb kids everywhere. It's because we didn't figure out how to do that in the first place. And the third is that the program and service is often like a short-term solution, not the long-term solution. I think people like sort of lose that. So I'm always interested in like, what the biggest levers are. What would be the thing that would like actually decarcerate the fastest rate? How can we teach literacy as, as like quickly as possible and at scale at quality? Like how can we close the racial wealth gap in big strokes and not around the edges? Because with people of color, we all, it's always an edge solution. It's never a broad stroke solution. I think I'm over the edge solutions. I would add that white supremacy does not have any one object on which it it focuses all its attention. And as we've seen in the last 18 months, there have been so many different groups that have kind of come under attack. And so solidarity is really our only hope. I mean, nobody knows exactly where it will train its lens next. So I think just having having like a way to mobilize and having a way to support one another is really important, not only reactively, but, you know, to have that in place moving forward. Thanks for listening to this episode. And thank you to Christian, Shalini, and DeRay for an engaging conversation. Thank you to our executive producer, Jared Carrington. Please stay tuned for our next wrap on episode, which will focus on immigration here on Anthropod. Thank you again for listening.